Hello and welcome to episode 20 of That 60s Recording Podcast, uh, conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Um, so here we are, 2021, uh, the last uh, episode that you listened to with Malcolm Toft um, was a pre-recorded intro, so this is the first time that I am speaking to you in the uh, what I hope is a slightly better year of 2021. <laughs> um, so we are in the midst of a, another lockdown in the UK, which is absolutely brilliant. And I know that uh, that was sarcastic, by the way. I know that a lot of the listeners, in fact, the majority of listeners are over in the US. Um, so yeah, you may not know that that's what's happening here. But yeah, we're in, in another lockdown, which is great. So spending um, all day every day with my <laughs> wife and kids, which is really nice, um, but it means that progress on uh, sort of work and studio things uh, is a lot slower than it uh, used to be. It's sort of obviously it's exactly the same as March. Um, but here's hoping that uh, we all get vaccinated in a double quick time and we can all get back to doing things <laughs> again. Um, I'm quite excited about this year for the podcast. Um, I've learnt a lot over uh, throughout 2020 about making podcasts and hosting podcasts. Um, and I've got a lot of ideas for guests um, that I want to feature uh, on the podcast and some ideas of subjects. Uh, so rather than having uh, a guest specifically who I speak to about the guest, like subject matters, like I did with Ed Alesco when we did the guitar rundown, uh, think more episodes like that would be quite nice where we focus in on a particular feature. Um, as always, I'm really open to feedback from you guys and, and you know, this is a, uh, I, want, I want it to be a dialogue um, and I'm hoping to still strike that balance between having people who were involved directly in 60s recording and then having modern era producers who obviously don't, not always uh a recording completely analog obviously everybody has to get it into the computer at some point but they as as you've kind of discovered if you're a regular listener listener to this podcast is that the 60s recording is an ethos as much as anything else and it seems to be that everybody who interests me that I'd like to speak to is a big 60s music fan obviously namely the Beatles and records in a way that is sympathetic to the way that they did it in the 60s even if they're not particularly aware of it it's definitely just an attitude that people have towards recording so I think it's particularly interesting to talk with modern producers and engineers as well as guys who were directly there um, and again I'm, I would welcome uh, suggestions comments subjects whatever anything you want to get in touch about um I will uh, will be gratefully received. <laughs> so anyway, uh, along those lines, uh, the guest I have today is Shell Talmy, who is a producer, so not an engineer or anything like that, just a straight-up producer um, from the US who worked over there for a bit and then made his way to the UK, um, which we'll talk more a bit about in the, uh, in the interview, and ended up um, through a little bit of a... Sleight of hand, if you like, <laughs> um, getting a job at Decca Records and then becoming uh, a really renowned producer, working with the Kinks, uh, the Who, and a whole host of other people, which you, you'll hear about throughout the podcast. Um, so uh, it's a slightly shorter interview, um, but it was slightly too long just to leave in one bulk. 
Um, it's January. We're all tired, so I've left it as two slightly shorter episodes. Um, so it's not not so much for you to wade through. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Shell, tell me. So I'm really, really pleased to be joined uh, by Shell Talmi. Uh, actually joined for the second time because uh, you you guys won't know, but I made a huge uh, clangor last week and completely messed my timings up. So I very much appreciate you giving me uh, your time again for the second time. Um, well, stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, it seems to happen to me quite a lot, which I probably shouldn't say, but it does. It does. <laughs> um. I think I'll blame having two children and a and a busy life, but there we go. <laughs> um, so I'd like to uh, I'd like to start off be- because you're known, uh, you're sort of famous for being a producer of music, and I just wondered if you could describe in in your words what a producer in the nineteen sixties role was within the recording <clears throat> process. Well, the the producer's role it depends on who you're talking to. Uh, I am in the category of what those of us do uh, as a hands-on producer. I'm really there from the beginning to the end. I don't check in once a week for a half hour. Uh, I start out with finding a talent or an artist or a group or whatever. And um, if I'm going to be producing them, either for uh, starting out with singles or LPs. I will work with them on choosing material. I do the arrangements. Uh, I, I hire additional musicians if necessary. Obviously, uh, book the studio. I'm there for the entire recording sessions. I, so therefore, it's not just the initial recording, but it's you know, overdubs and uh, it, all that entails and backing vocals and then uh, finally the mixes and uh, eventually the mastering. So I'm really there from beginning to end. Wow, you very, very much are hands-on in, in that respect. Would uh, I've read in, in previous interviews that you've given, and I'm supposing for that reason, that you tend to only work with artists that you must feel a really affiliation for the music for. Um, yeah, well, I'll, if you mean would I want to record somebody who can sing, you're co- quite correct. Yes, I, know. <laughs> I guess you've got uh, to you've got to I really mean, like I the mean, music. There, there is there is a whole bunch of um, artists these days who uh, would I would hope thank their whatever gods they worship every night for Melodyne. Um, uh, uh, there's I, I, people who are rather singers, and there's a whole bunch of them, as I'm sure you're aware, that sing off-key. And um, and with Melodyne, you, you know, nobody would know, but I know. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that they uh, have attained as much notoriety as they have is kind of insulting to the people who really can sing. Yeah, it certainly is frustrating. Uh, I, I mean, I I know plenty of, as we all do, plenty of singers who are, are fantastic who who don't have the career that they deserve. Um, mm. But I, I guess in the sense that you you must every artist that you work with you must really invest in and be really passionate about that music. Um, otherwise, you you wouldn't be able to. I suppose mentally, you wouldn't be able to give the amount you do in in the process. 
No, well, no, that's true. I, I, if I don't like the artist or the group and I don't like the material, I won't do it. There's no point in it. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm there to make the best kind of music I can with the best kind of artists I can find. If, if those things don't exist, there's no point in hiring me to try and do it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And so let's um, let's go back to the beginning and hopefully put a bit of that in in context. So I <laughs> so I read that the the high school that you went to was a they must have had something in the water because Phil Spector went there, Michael Jackson went there, you went there, <laughs> and a whole yeah, host of well, people. <laughs> now it's a it's it's interesting. There's two high schools here in LA that are known for specific things. Uh, I went to uh, one called Fairfax, which is mainly musical. Hollywood High was mainly actors and actresses, and uh, and and well, and okay, Beverly Hills High also has a lot of actors and actresses in it. Uh, but Fairfax was particularly known for the um, musical people. You know, they had, uh, uh, had, had Lieber and Stoller. Wait, uh, we had. Uh, uh, Herbie Alpert. Uh, we had all kinds of people, you know, coming out of out of Fairfax. I see. So, did, did you did you go there specifically to study music, or did you just happen to be? No, no, no. It was just it was my neighborhood high school. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> so, did you have any idea at that point that music was something you'd go on to pursue? Uh, it was always in the back of my mind. I, I originally was going to. I thought I was going to be a film director and oh. doing that kind of stuff. And for various reasons, that didn't happen. So uh, music was always my number two or equal number one, if you like. And um, that's what, it, as, the way it worked out, that's how I wound up with uh, with music. Okay. Uh, and then how, so you ended up with a job at Conway Studios. Um, Correct. Then how did what what came between high school and and getting that job? How did that come about? Oh, I went to uh, college, and uh, I took a what I thought was a totally unrelated course, which is psychology, <laughs> and uh, which I found out did help me a, a great deal with a, a couple of three bands in particular, and um, uh, and I got. Frankly, I got bored. I mean, uh, um, I don't know if you know many people in psychology or psychiatrists or shrinks, if you like. Uh, <laughs> when, when I first started the first class, I discovered out of the class of about, uh, I think there was maybe 25 or 30 of us, that one other girl and I were the only two sane people in the place. You know, <laughs> you know, all the others were there to solve their own problems. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's one of the reasons why I never took it up. Okay, and that led to, uh, and then, how did you sort of go for, between that to to getting the job at Conway? Did you okay? Well, them? I I actually worked for ABC Television first. Oh, okay. Uh, and also one of the local channels here, and uh, I started uh, doing. I was a page. I did cue cards. I started doing floor managing, and uh, I then discovered, which was probably good that early on, that I was not really extremely good with uh, corporate politics. And um, it was, 
smothering. And so I got out of there and in uh, LA at the time was a place called Martoni's, which was an Italian restaurant, but was kind of the music biz hangout. <laughs> and, and that's where I met uh, 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 Phil, Phil Yen, who owned Conway, and, and we, we became good friends. And I, and I said, I'm looking around to do something. He said, why don't you come and become a recording engineer, and I'll, I'll, I'll teach you. I said, okay. Sounds good. So that's how I wound up there. Wow, that's that. That's, I just love the the little um, sort of serendipitous events that happen that lead. No, lead I, to I, I think I think your one's life is wound up with serendipity, don't you think? I mean, oh, absolutely. If it wasn't for various things that happened. <clears throat> I'm not sure anybody would actually wind up doing what they do. <laughs> yeah, I think you're you're absolutely spot on. I mean, the the psychiatry that you're talking about. I mean, there's a a huge amount of uh, sort of work. Well, you're working with people as a producer, aren't you? And 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 coaching an artist in a sense. And that's a seems right. very uh, very well placed to set you up to do that. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Sure. But I I never approached working with an artist like I was a shrinker. Oh, no. like <laughs> except with, except with one band. I did Manfred Mann was uh, the, the band that were, I always consider myself the resident shrink as opposed to the producer. I mean, these guys <laughs> would argue about anything in the middle of a take. And they were, they were all um, university guys, and they, they all believed they were super smart and uh, that um, they would argue about anything and everything. And I had to say, hey, guys, time, you know, let's continue on with the session. And <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that was amusing, um, but not permanently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So what was, um, recording or working at Conway like? Did you have much free reign or were you able to? Oh, no, it... no, I'm very much free reign I had that, uh, I was there for three days and Phil said, well, you're about, you're doing a session on your own from now on. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, that's being band, and uh, that that first session that I did, which is very memorable, I will never forget it. Was actually there were a a jazz uh, septet, and um, I had no no problem. I'd learned the board. We're talking about pretty simple boards now, you know, with rotary pots and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. And it was only three track we had. Uh, uh, as the, you know, the amount of multi-tracks and obviously, you know, uh, uh, just mono uh, single track machines as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that was easy to learn and I learned and the microphones were, 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 were simple, I found, and I was able to learn what, what they did and how to mic them and all. So all that part was fine. What then really threw me is that um, I record the band and, and it was coming out great. Is um, they then wanted an edit and uh, <laughs> I, I had never done an edit and and that at that point in time with tape, there there wasn't even any edit blocks. Um, Phil would do freehand edits with a pair of scissors, and um, uh, I I had never even tried it before, uh, uh, and they so. 
I, I did. It took, I must have, I think I lost about 10 pounds while I was doing all this. <laughs> Uh, and I, I finally, I actually, I finally, how somehow or another, I know I got it together and it worked. And I, uh, I, what I also remember is that I, I didn't charge him for an hour of time because <laughs> <laughs> it took me so long to do this. Should have taken me like you know, four minutes, three minutes, maybe. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, I can't. I can only imagine it's your first session, and the, uh, it must have the pressure you must have felt would have been immense. I mean, how old were you at that point? uh 21 or two i think wow and in in charge of a session with with so seven musicians this is madness it, it, that you yeah you must have felt well, a lot of pressure now that didn't bother me i mean doing the rest of that was was fun i was i was fairly confident that i could get it done mm-hmm. but uh but when i was thrown that kind of a curve which was unexpected <laughs> that really did get to me um, and Conway, uh, which you're probably going to ask more about it, but if you're not, I'll tell you about it. Conway was the studio for the Wrecking Crew. You know what the Wrecking Crew is, yes? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, you, you took the next question out of my mouth. <laughs> okay, well, they they loved that studio. It was a great studio. Um, and so I got a chance to record all of those guys on, on several things, which was really a pleasure because... Uh, I uh, was working with like the best musicians in LA at the time. It was great. Uh, they are, I mean, the the sort of creme de la creme. We've had uh, David Hood, the bass player, on. I've spoken to him for this podcast, and he was such a lovely guy. And I can't, I can only imagine what life must have been like then. Oh yeah, they, they you no, know, they were all terrific. And uh, I, I, then again, I, I've always gotten along with um, musicians. Uh, I just before even asked the question. I have, unfortunately, not gotten along with managers very often because um, uh, I find that most of them, uh, about the only talent they have is a gift of gab of um, inducing naive artists to be managed by them. Uh, And uh, most of them have absolutely no talent and shouldn't even be allowed to exist, but there you go. Um, <laughs> anyways, musicians are great. I have a great respect for musicians because I'm really, I mean, I play guitar, but I'm a, I'm a good enough producer not to ever want to record myself on guitar. <laughs> uh, uh, so I respect really good musicians and uh, I had the opportunity to work with the best of them. Did you have a particular sort of session set up? at Conway that you used? So are you using the same mic techniques for each session? Well, it's, well it's, uh, since you've, you apparently have done your homework, you know that, uh, that I and Phil experimented a lot on how to mic everything better. And uh, you know, one of the things that I eventually did was everybody at that point was using like three mics or four mics maximum on drums. And I wound up using a dozen mm. and some. I brought with me here in in LA, and then when I went to England, everybody was was doing that, and I said, you know, you can't do that because it'll phase uh, or whatever. And I said, well, I guess you know, wait and see. And you know, like two or three months later, everybody was trying to use twelve mics. So, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time doing that. So that was that was a lot of my off time with and and Phil and I would do isolation and how to record various. Uh, instruments and all that kind of stuff it really was uh, well worthwhile doing all that stuff 
it's a an, another one of those interesting things where at the point that point in your career given the space to experiment and and I'm assuming learn from mistakes and all that kind of stuff would set set you in good stead for what was coming up later. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I've, um, I had a, a chance to make mistakes and, uh, uh, because it, it was fairly, I mean, by today's standard, it was totally primitive. Uh, so, you know, everybody was making mistakes and uh, there's a lot of very bad recording going on. And there was some very good recording going on by people who had invested in time like I had. Um, so, you know, I, I preferred being at that end of the scale. And, um, and Phil was the same way. Phil was a really a brilliant engineer. And um, so, uh, yeah, we had a good time. So then you took a holiday to the UK for, was it three months that you were, you were well, just Well, no, going... I, I, planned on, I planned on going for, for, for five or six weeks. Of, you know, Phil was English and kept telling you how wonderful London was. And, and I thought, shit, you know, I'm... Uh, early 20s before life passes me by, I really should go see some of the rest of the world. So I said, okay, I'm going for five or six weeks. I want to do London. I want to go to Paris and, you know, like that. And um, uh, how, how it came about that I stayed was I did, I thought, okay, I'm going to be gone that amount of time. If I could work for a couple of weeks, so I didn't have a whole lot of bread. Um, I would do that. And I took the precaution of, uh, asking around and uh, about people in rather I'm talking about people that I knew in LA at labels uh, who I could speak to <clears throat> and um, uh, one in particular my, my friend Nick Benet who was uh, uh, at that point one he was like the A&R guy over at Capitol Records and he said uh, I just finished some some uh, acetates of stuff I've been doing Take them with you, and so you did them because I hadn't really ever produced anything. Yeah, pretty much. I've been, done a lot of, of engineering, but not really production. I've done like one or two things. And I said, "Okay, great." And when I got there, I I uh, went to one of the people I was recommended to go to, who made an appointment for me to go see Dick Rowe at Decca, and um, and I walked in. And I would. I thought, "Okay, I'm not going to be here very long. I will." assume a role. I will be uh, a, as expected, a uh, loud, opinionated American. <laughs> and, um, and so I said, uh, well, here I am. And, you know, arguably, arguably I may be the best uh, uh, producer you've met since sliced bread was invented. And I, and, um, and I said, I, just, I brought the, this is what I just done. And I presented Nick's acetates, which were uh, Lou Rawls and the Beach Boys, and so, wow. he, yeah, so he played them both. He said, um, "You start today." <laughs> <laughs> so, and by the time everybody found out it was total crap, I had already had a big hit, and I thought, "Okay, I might as well stay on for a while." And um, I, you know, went up saying seventeen years. Wow, that's such a fantastic story. <laughs> you, that, what confidence it must have taken to step in and do that. I love it. Well, I, I, I had nothing to lose. I didn't, I didn't have anything. I knew I was going back. In fact, I had um, uh, a singles deal uh, with, with a, a very good label here in L.A. Um, that they offered me right before. I said, I, I, I'm on this trip. I'll be back. I'd be I'm delighted to do it. 
So I was apparently going to be a producer regardless. And, um, uh, and arriving in London and doing what I did, the only, my only uh, reason for doing any of it was to see if I could make some money for, for you know, a couple of weeks' work. Mm. And um, so, I, so basically, I really didn't care what I said. I mean, I thought, you know, I, I can be brash as hell. And, you know, I, was, I wasn't impolite, but I was brash. <laughs> and, um, and like that. So that's the way it worked out. And did you, am I right in thinking you lived on King's Road when you were in London? I, well, I, I lived all over that area. I certainly lived right off the King's Road, not on it. Um, and I also lived in South Kensington. And I also eventually uh, lived in Belgravia and uh, Knightsbridge. Oh. Uh, but, but it did start out around King's Road, yes. Could you, I mean, for anybody who's um, slightly younger and doesn't know, uh, doesn't know King's Road. It's the street that's sort of infamous with that uh, stereotypical '60s culture. What what was it like in in? The, oh, it was fantastic! It was it was it was uh, it was a uh, a situation that was a happening about to happen. And as <laughs> I as I got there, I mean, there was there was probably I'm going to guess there were three to four hundred people that pretty much knew each other, not personally by sight, anyhow. And when there was a party, all four of us used to descend on the party. Uh, and King's Road at that time was made up of uh, pretty much uh, uh, every kind of ar artistic type that you want to know about. You know, photographers, actors, actresses, uh, uh, music, film, you know, whatever. I mean, uh, anything to do with uh, some sort of artistic endeavor was could be found there. And, um, and then the whole the whole damn thing just exploded, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened, but all of a sudden, all of us uh, found things to do and started making names for ourselves. Wow. I mean, was it... Uh, I'm going going off a tangent for me here, but was it a, a, a sort of a cheaper place to live? Because that tends to be the way that artists live in a... or inhabit a, a sort of a cheaper area, and then that's well, when it well, becomes I, more I, expensive. I think what, what you... Uh, what, your listeners and everybody else has to realize that in the early 1960s, everything was cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> Especially uh, London, which was still getting over the war. Uh, and uh, the difference being for your English listeners, uh, to get into a black taxi at that point in time cost a whole threepence to, <laughs> as, as the initial amount of money you'd have to pay uh, to get across London for probably about three or four shillings. <laughs> wow. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't even dare go near a taxi now. You, you go down the street, it costs you 20 quid. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's everything was cheaper. And yes, yeah, so the consequences were able to afford it. And and, and that. Fortunately, I found a job immediately. Uh, not that I was being paid a, a fortune, but by those standards, I probably—I mean, by today's standards, I probably was. What did you think of the English music scene compared to what you'd seen in LA? Oh, uh, it was way more polite. Is the word I think I used, and a lot of English used to use that word also. <laughs> when I got uh, these sort of uh, guys and girls I met who knew the American music scene. And, and they said, by comparison, ours is just too polite, um, and which it was. 
and then it, um, it, it, it eventually erupted also. So you were, I mean, you've said in, in numerous interviews that I've read that you sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but kind of set about to make a, your records more aggressive seems a really heavy word, but that's kind of the nature of, uh, you know, say, um, you you really got me or what you did with the who it, they are aggressive sounding to an extent well, I, I no i absolutely like doing that kind of music the other thing that i also taught myself or learned how to do when i was in la at the studio was to make records louder than anybody else so um i brought that with me also and uh consequently my records absolutely stood out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, it, 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 yeah, you really got me as far as I'm concerned. It was, was, was so much fun to do because it was aggressive and also have, it wound up having one of the more iconic openings of all time. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it, that worked out great. And as did, uh, of course, uh, uh, the, you know, the, all the Who stuff, which, which they were even heavier duty than than the uh, the kings were <laughs> absolutely so. can um the, i mean i'm sure some of the while, while we're just mentioning you really got me there's a i'm sure some of my listeners will be aware of the um the rumor of jimmy page playing the solo uh, during that song yeah, i wonder yeah, if you could just i, I, I knew you were going to bring that up uh this this will be i'm guessing about the 6455th time i've answered this question jimmy page <laughs> Did not play the solo on You Really Got Me. He was there as a rhythm guitarist, period, end of statement. Fantastic. I'll I'll move on. I just wanted to get that in there in case anybody okay. messaged me and said you haven't you didn't you didn't address that. <laughs> um, okay. what was he like to work with as a as and and Bobby Graham on drums, it's uh, Oh no, Bob, Bobby was one of my favorite people. He was a, was a really good guy. Oh, excellent drummer, the best session drummer at that point in time, and Jimmy Page was uh, excellent. I always got along with Jimmy. I, I was, I was. Uh, somebody mentioned that they heard this kid who was really good, and I, I sought him out and got him, and he was, he was better than good. Um, so I, I started using him uh, pretty much exclusively. And the same thing was when I found uh, Mickey Hopkins. I used him exclusively, yeah. and turned him on to, you know, but he eventually wound up using. So, um, I, I, as I said earlier, I love and have great respect for really excellent musicians. So, all those three guys certainly fit into that. How did it work in terms of session musicians like those guys and the bands that they were the playing instruments on the records for? It's a bit of a. It feels in the modern way, in the modern day now, it feels a bit of a strange thing to happen. How how did it? feel then well why would it feel like a strange thing to happen now well for a well i mean i suppose if if a band like the kinks came along and they a lot of the musicians got replaced on the record by session guys or it just feels like well, a, a, a okay well all right well for openers let, let's see if i can address this because it's a fairly large question i'll try to be as uh succinct as possible um <laughs> uh, Many bands, both England and America, uh, did not play on their own records initially because 
they weren't good enough and session musicians were employed, like most of which you probably don't even know about, but it happened uh, more times than you would think of. Um, I tried to use musicians, if at all possible, from the band, and if they weren't up to what I thought they should be, I hired somebody else. And um, uh, uh, it, and I trying to think if I ever used. Yeah, I, in fact, I did have a couple of bands. So I used totally session musicians, but not many. Um, the only the, the uh, well, okay, let's let's talk about the the Kinks. Um, they did that point in time. They did not have a drummer, which is why I hired Bobby Graham because uh, Mick Avery was not was not available at that time. It wasn't hired at that time. I don't know which. Anyway, that's how I got Bobby Graham. Secondly, um, I used um, Jimmy Page on guitar as a rhythm guitarist because Ray basically did not want to play rhythm guitar and sing at the same time. He wanted to concentrate on singing. So that, that's how that wound up. And for the album, for the Kinks, I, I added John Lord on, on um, uh, organ because he was brilliant and I needed one. And um, I had uh, Perry Ford playing piano, which he did on um, uh, You Really Got because nobody was playing keyboards in the band. And I thought I, it needed it. So that, that's, that's how all that worked out. I, it's not something like I, I thought or that, uh, that uh, I, I just, I, I hate what you guys sound like. I'm going to hire you. <laughs> <laughs> It was, I mean, it sounds like it was a generally accepted thing from the band's point of view that that was, that may or may not happen. And, you know, they, they just accepted it, it, that. No, it, it was. I mean, uh, nobody was, as far as, well, I mean, I, I never lied about it. I just said, you know, if you guys are up to it, that's that's cool. We'll go with it. And and most of the bands that I uh, wound up recording were totally up to it. Um, there's very few times that I ever in fact, I, I said I, I think I did one band that replaced everybody because the band was awful, um, and it, it, and it never happened. By the way, I mean whatever I recorded, I don't remember. I don't even remember what we're talking about at this point. <laughs> but it didn't happen. Um, but I always try to use the the, the the guys who were part of the band. I, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah, but ultimately you're trying to make the best record possible, I suppose. So you, you know, whatever well, gets the like best make, results. That's what I was after to make the, the the record I was doing as good as possible. Yeah. So there we go, uh, part one of the interview with Shell Tell Me. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I uh, <laughs> I got some interesting feedback from my dad, who is an avid listener. Hi, Dad. I know you're listening to this. Um, about the musical intros and outros, and he said, I think it, it sounds like I've started listening to a different podcast or some music had just appeared from nowhere. So I'm working on the fades and making the fades slightly longer and talking over the music so as not to confuse my dad. <laughs> um, I should also mention that uh, I have a mammoth list of... Oh, th those of you who listen regularly again will know that I do these isolated drums where I send out um, re-recordings that I've played and made of Ringo's drum parts, um, sort of note for note, really particular, um, and I try and get the sounds really right, and I send them out on a mailing list, which you can find at allyouneedisdrums.com, um, and I'm working my way through currently a list of the most requested songs I've had, it's about 25 songs, <laughs> so that will do me half the year. 
um, just sort of taking notating them down. And the ones that are coming out uh, the day that you're listening to this potentially, which will be the 19th of January, uh, is We Can Work It Out. Um, and I've just started transcribing the medley from Abbey Road. Um, so that will feature at some stage. It certainly won't be next week. I don't know how long it's going to take me to transcribe it, but that's what I'm working on. Um, so just wanted to tell you that if you're new to the podcast and you haven't checked that out already. Um, okay, so next episode in a fortnight's time will be the second part of the uh, short and sweet conversation with Shell Talmy. And uh, it just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in contact with me, you uh, can do that by... Uh, my email address which is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com or you can go to allyouneedisdrums.com uh, to get in touch through my website or I'm on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums uh, which seems to be where a lot of people contact me I've had a lot of messages through there and uh, some suggestions which has been really useful and I'm working on those as we speak as usual I'd like to say a big thank you to my good friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music he uh, so amazingly made for me and to my good friend David Henshaw who supplies the artwork for the podcast um, that I do I put out every fortnight um, which you'll be able to see the artwork on Instagram but he made the logo for the podcast too so thank you very much to both of you guys um, okay so there we go uh, have a absolutely fantastic fortnight and I will see you in a couple of weeks or hear you in a couple of weeks okay goodbye goodbye <laughs>